What's up, guys and gals? My name is Chris Tondewald, and this is Ambition Radio. This is a podcast where we interview cool people doing cool stuff, try and find out what makes them tick, what keeps them driven and motivated, and be able to balance their career, their family, their life with the pursuit of their passions or their hobbies. This week, we have drummer Ben Tufts. He's pretty much in every band in D.C. at the moment. Um, We do a little bit of joking about that in the episode. Um, His main three right at the moment are Fuzz Queen, Virginia Creep, and Uptown Boys Choir, I believe. It's in the episode. You'll figure it out. All the links for the bands are going to be in the description of the episode, so definitely check all those out. Fuzz Queen will be doing a tour at the end of November through the the middle of December, um, starting it off in Portland and then coming back home on the 18th at the Black Cat. Ben is also part of the Craig Tufts Fund, named after his dad, and part of the National Wildlife Fund. Um, we talk a little bit about that. We talk about how that came to be the scholarship that goes with that, and then all the charity shows that he does for those every year. So definitely go out and support those when they get announced. Thank you, everyone, that's listened so far. Please rate and review on iTunes. Try and get that number up. Thanks. Enjoy. All right, cool. So who did you play with last night? Last night, uh, Fuzz Queen had a show at Galaxy Hut in Clarendon. And that's, what, your 10th, 12th, 13th band? (laughs) just this year <laughs> i don't know i probably should have counted before i came on because that's like that's a question i get sometimes well which one which ones do you have actually active well the the not so short and not particularly interesting answer to the question about how many bands i'm in is like there's there's actually kind of there's two kinds of projects there's bands where it's it's kind of like the difference between being an employee versus being a contractor. Like, there, I, I play with lots of different folks. Um, probably anywhere between twenty and thirty artists on a calendar year, but um, only a few of those projects are bands where like we practice every week. Uh, everybody's on the hook for for paying for rehearsal space or chipping in for recording money or whatever your traditional Um, band format yeah like probably we're not going to book a show unless everybody can make it sort of thing uh um everybody gets to to contribute creatively one way or another right um and that's a band and then there's on the other side of the spectrum there's i guess you could say like stuff that i just do to pay the rent sometimes creative projects do pay the rent but often they don't and so, um, you know, society gigs like weddings and private events, uh, where, you know, if I couldn't do the gig, somebody else surely could. And, and I'm right. just showing up to get paid. And, um, and then there's this gray area in the middle because there's also creative projects like original projects where I still kind of, it's the same capacity as I might be to a wedding band where I might be the first call drummer. I might not, but if I can't do the gig, they'll probably find somebody else. And I might be on the record. I might not. But, you know, if the record goes nowhere, I still got paid to do the session. If the record makes a billion gazillion dollars, I still just got paid that once. And that's just (laughs) kind of the understanding. There's like a trade-off of risk versus, you know. So as far as like actual bands that that I feel ownership of and that I feel like I belong to and that I've been playing with for a bit, um, there's Fuzz Queen 
and Virginia Creep and a band called Uptown Boys Choir. Okay, I didn't know you were part of that. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. I, I like them. I saw, I feel like I saw them still when Iota was a thing. Uptown Boys Choir? Yeah. yeah. Now, that is one project that when I started out, I was kind of just a hired gun. Mm-hmm. But I eventually approached Kevin, who's the, the songwriter, and said, like, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to be a, a real part of this. And in and, and which he was, he was happy to, to have me on board. We also had an understanding for a while, uh, and it's not a thing we've had to deal with recently because we've been so busy finishing a record that we haven't been playing out as much. But we had an understanding for a while that if I couldn't do a show on a case-by-case basis, he could find a substitute. So sometimes we had Patrick Frank cover drums for me when I couldn't do it. Gotcha. So, yeah. How do you juggle all those? Because it, it can't be all the same music just going through your head all the time, right? Oh, um, well, do you mean in terms of scheduling or in terms of... Just in general, because you're, you're looking at... Scheduling is one thing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like you're a machine that literally will go run 15 miles to a venue, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure that you did, and then go play a show for four hours or five hours, whatever it is. Um, and then you have you have all that. You have your teaching... And then you have your actual music too. So yeah. how do you can juggle that? And then how do you balance your playing style between all the different projects that you have? Okay. Well, there's, there's a lot of questions in there. And mm-hmm. I appreciate, first of all, you're very kind for, I, I appreciate um, what you're saying. Um, I, I will say that I don't always balance things well. And my body usually lets me know when I'm not doing that. Um, and that can happen just in terms of like sheer exhaustion or, um, uh, like, uh, repetitive stress injury type stuff like tendonitis, which I've dealt with on and off for years. But, um, as far as scheduling, I live and die by my Google calendar and, and, and sometimes I really do truly die by it because over the past year as things have gotten even busier, Mm -hmm. um, I have definitely failed to head off at the pass some like double booking issues that have cost me some some gigs and created some problems for me um but most of the folks i i work with they're very gracious and understanding of the fact that i am in multiple bands and so i work as hard as i can to make sure i don't double book but it still happens every once in a while um but google calendar is a blessing um as far as um knowing as far as i guess one of the questions i I guess i'm sort of extrapolating from what you just said is like how how do I, what is it, I, I guess, I'm paraphrasing, what, are, are you asking, like, what is it like to, be, to play lots of different styles yeah, on so, a regular basis? Yeah, so, because that, I would, I would feel like when, as a person that's just, because I don't know what I'm doing musically, I just tell you guys to play stuff, and then hopefully that's how that works. <laughs> um, but as, as far as that goes, I mean, you're, you're playing in uh, more or less psychedelic, heavy rock and roll band in Fuzz Queen, uh-huh. a straight, basically rock and roll, heavy metal band in Virginia Creep. Yeah, I don't know what to call that band. Right, I, I don't know either. It's 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 kind of genre-bending a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Uptown, they're Uptown pop Boys rock, Choir. right? Uptown Boys Choir is um, it's, it's indie rock with... A decidedly, there's a tinge of like kind of Americana, like, right. like the good kind, um, not the Mumford and Sons like <laughs> right. kind, but uh, and probably also some a tinge of of like uh, some punk influence also. 
mm-hmm. uh, but it's definitely pretty muted. Uh, that band is, is just has just very clearly evolved into the the amalgamation, the sound of the people that are in the band when they're on stage. I mean, which is I realize is not helping anybody understand how we sound. I guess I'm just saying, come see us play. Yeah, that's fine. Um, are you able but, to juggle those different styles pretty consistently, even through like your wedding gigs? All I think the other so. Ones? Yeah, uh, I've been a musical, a bit of a musical omnivore my whole life, um, in terms of listening. And I think that came from my my parents' record collection, which was kind of where I first discovered a lot of the the music that I love. Um, and even in in high school, when I think most of your best music fans are like super snobby and mm-hmm. tend to, because it's also like part of your identity, right? Like it's how you sort of like delineate, like this is my crew, and right. we listen to X, you know, we listen to whatever. That's how you really build connections. Um, yeah, like all, my yeah. CD collection in high school was, I mean, I'd Tori Amos and Pantera and like everything in between. And um, and then I got heavy into jazz in college. And um, I will say that where I'm at now as a 42-year-old drummer and musician, um, I I wouldn't tell you that I've always played everything all the time. First of all, there's lots of styles that I don't play that if somebody calls me for, I'd be like, you don't need, you want to call this guy. Right. You don't want me. But um, it's it's not like I've always played everything all the time. It's that during my life, there's been uh, longer periods where I only did, I only played jazz gigs for a while. Um, and which a lot of people who come see me play now might find surprising because I haven't played a jazz gig really in, the better part of five years, four or five right. years. And that used... would be less than comfortable now to do that. Right, because we're um, used to you see, seeing you literally go and hit real hard on all the drums, but in the most technical, amazing way. Well, that's, I appreciate that. That I Well, you're, it's, it's so weird because you're, you blend, I feel like you blend, you can go into whatever band that you want to. And it's, it's pretty amazing to be like the linchpin of all those and go through all the different styles and all the different th- the different um, writing in there and all the different feel of it because it's not always just hitting the drums. It's just yeah. the way the atmosphere works and all that in there too. Dynamics, dynamics are a thing that exists. Yeah. 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 Loud doesn't sound loud if you're loud all the time. It just, right. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, everything that I've experienced up to this point as a musician goes into what I do. And I really think the only thing that's preserved me um, cause I don't consider myself like, I mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying about technique. Um, and I do teach. And so technique is like something I work on with my students a lot, but I go out and I see drummers play that are supreme technicians and do things that I can't, I can't touch. Um, so I think just the only thing that I focus on is in any given situation, like it's a, a, a musical performance is like a conversation. And if you can't listen then you're not really participating. And if you're not actually responding to what's going on around you, then you're not really participating. Um, and so I've always said that, um, although I'm sure people look at me and think drummer, uh, that really I started playing drums so that I could play music. I didn't start playing music so that I could play drums. And I think if you go and you see any instrumentalist or even a, a vocalist, like there, sometimes I watch a performer and I think like they are there to make a connection with the other people on stage and to present art, something compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've all seen performances like that, you know, and you just get sucked in. And then other times I've seen art, uh, folks who, to some degree, it seems like 
they seem to have this almost selfish need. Selfish isn't always a bad word, but in this case, selfish need uh, to like express themselves almost at at the expense of <laughs> the song or whatever right. is going. And and uh, and that's kind of can sometimes be a little bit like watching an athlete as opposed to watching an artist. It's like, wow, well, that's that's really impressive what you're doing right now, and I, I can't do a lot of that. But is it? creating something or is it just are you just making a lot of sounds that make you happy <laughs> um, where did that mindset first start for you oh man i don't know i think uh well so maybe i do know i i, I guess uh as a kid growing up um i was very shy and i didn't have a lot of neighbors because uh my dad was the caretaker of this enormous property for the national wildlife federation so um, well, I didn't have a lot of close neighbors. So it wasn't like I couldn't, like a normal kid maybe in the suburbs or in the city, just go next door and hang out with the right. kids next door. And so I got home from school and I listened to records as soon from as early as I can remember. Um, and a lot of it was just that my dad modeled, even though my dad's not a musician, was not a musician, he modeled for me this appreciation for music that was really um, uh, formative. Um, when you grow up, I think... For me, when your folks look up to to people, that's mm-hmm. a very for me it was a was a very like important thing. Like, oh wow! Like, so m- my dad would pull a record out of the sh- off the shelf, and would either read the liner notes to me or just tell me things about the artist or the band that aren't that weren't in the liner notes. That's actually really and, impressive. And and yeah, well, he was you know he couldn't hardly even whistle a, a tune, but he, he knew good music when he heard Sound, it. Yeah, sounds like um, me. I can't. I've tried, <laughs> I've, I've tried playing guitar and like learning guitar this past year, and it's going oh, cool. terribly. <laughs> uh, my dog has come up to me and licked my hand more often than not every time that I started and be like, you put that down. It's, you, don't, you don't need to do that. And if he's not trying to like phys- physically force me off the guitar, mm-hmm. he's just staring at me from afar and be like, mm, yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you're always going to have critics. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. I didn't think they were going to be so close to home. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I think, so that became an escape and a, a regular thing for me. Mm-hmm. And so along with reading, because I did a lot of reading when I was younger too, it was just, you know, when I had a rough day, when I had a tough time, like music was how I coped. Always, 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 always. And like middle school sucks for just about everybody. So I was no exception for that, from that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you couldn't find me without my Walkman in middle school. And it was just kind of part of my anatomy. Like, right. if my if the headphones weren't in my ears, they were around my neck ready to go as soon as I had a minute. Yeah, I remember getting grounded when I was uh, younger. And my mom would literally take away everything except for music. She knows that's the only thing that I, would keep me sane throughout everything. And if she really wanted to take it to that next level she would take away the music that's rough yeah it's it's not it wouldn't have been fun but luckily i was able to keep sanity with at least that yeah uh where did you find drums or when did you find drums well that's another cool uh question um so my my mother comes from a very musical family um although they all they almost all became nurses um, but growing up, there was a, an upright piano in the house, my mom's house. And so they all took lessons. Okay. Um, and 
so when I was four years old, um, my grandparents on my dad's side, uh, my, my grandma on my dad's side, no, my grandmother on my mom's side, sorry, uh, purchased, helped my folks purchase a Muppets drum set from Sears. That's cool. I was four years old. It had <laughs> literally had paper drum heads and it lasted for two weeks apparently, but I loved it. Um, my uncle, one of my mom's uh, younger siblings, uh, played drums growing up. And, and my mom's side of the family, there was like 18 years, I think, between the oldest and the youngest. So when I was very little, like two or three, he was still living at home with my grandmother. Gotcha. And okay. So I remember wandering into his room, uh, probably around Thanksgiving, around this time of year, not knowing that he was about to start hitting the drums. And I don't know if you've ever seen like little kids who haven't been exposed to much live music, but little kids' ears are really sensitive. Yeah. So they just immediately clamp both hands on, you know, on their ears. Right. And I remember doing that, but also simultaneously being like, what is this? <laughs> um, and that, so that was, you know, I don't remember anything from, most people don't remember anything from when right. they were two or three, but I do remember that. So years later, uh, of course, the obsession with music rock, in general, rock music and music yeah. continued on. Um, I, I, I just started delivering newspapers. Uh, I had a paper route when I was in middle school. Uh, it's the only time in my life when I've been able to save up money for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saved up money and I bought my own drum set uh, in eighth grade. I had already been playing in school band for a couple of years, but okay. that was just, you know, school percussion, like classroom percussion type stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I bought my own drum set. It was a, a white pearl export. I bought it at Veneman's, which no longer exists. It's now, I think, a guitar center in Rockville. Gotcha. And uh, that's where it started. Um, and I did also play other instruments from fairly early on because uh, the guys in my band uh, would leave all their stuff in my basement. That's the great <laughs> thing about um, being the drummer is that you know stuff gets left at your house, and so right. that's when I started playing other instruments. Because you too. have technically the most space. Right? Yeah. Well, no, it's sometimes, but sometimes. it's actually just that the drums are more of a pain in the butt to move. Yeah. And, and usually like if, man, if, if, if my mom hadn't have had a younger sibling who played drums, I don't know if she would have been so okay with me having drums in the house because drums right. are loud. Right. Um, and I still have neighbors from back in the day who like when I see them on tour, you know, they're all scattered like kids that are scattered across the country now. They'll be like, yeah, I still remember like you practicing like back in the day. I'm like, sorry. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's uh, in the suburbs, even if you're in a single family home, that sound will still carry. Yeah, um, for sure. So. Uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, trying to imagine bringing your drum set over to a friend, you have to have some very understanding friends, parents to be like, sure, bring your drum set over to my house and like knock, you know, things off the wall from. Right. No one's prepared for that. No. no. And there's no amount of pillows or anything to stifle that sound to go through. No. No. Um, So when, when did you, so you were just talking about one of your first bands in middle Mm -hmm. school then? Uh, We started playing together in high school. In high school. Uh Okay. And what was that? (laughs) <laughs> that band was called Jaunt. Okay. Uh, it was an instrumental band, not on purpose. It's just, <laughs> and and I, I think probably my students and my friends who had uh, musical ambitions in high school will kind of probably chuckle and can relate to this, but like, it's pretty hard to find somebody who's comfortable singing in high school because we're all at that awkward stage. Right. I could, I was totally cool hiding behind a drum set and hitting stuff. Right. That's easy. But like, put a microphone in my hand, like, no. 
I was terrified, um, as, as were most kids my age, except for the chorus kids. And like, there was often such a difference between how you would sing for chorus and what you wanted to hear in front of a rock band that, you know, that just wouldn't have worked. So, um, we were an instrumental band. We sounded like a lot of the music we listened to, which was Primus and Slayer and Tool, uh, and a lot of the music that was happening in and around DC at the time, and gotcha, yeah, that that is interesting. I, w- I would have liked to have seen that. We played about a dozen shows ever. Okay, um, and we we were together for like we weren't we weren't one of those. Th- there were a number of bands in Sterling, Nitpick being kind of the one that comes to mind first and foremost that that were that were super motivated and were right. good at networking and weren't antisocial like the three of us in my band <laughs> that actually could get out and play and you know nitpick built an incredible grassroots right. following all over the the states um at least over the eastern seaboard from what i remember yeah for sure um yeah we didn't do that we <laughs> we uh we were just three people who liked playing our instruments and there might still be some recordings that exist uh and i i, I don't remember any of that stuff it was a long time ago gotcha but, yeah and then I met you when you were playing with Aaron uh, Mason. Yeah. And back then you looked like you may be part of Weezer, and now you look like <laughs> Forrest Gump never quit running. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit about that, because that was with Paper Mache Monster, if I remember right. Uh, maybe. I only ever played one show with Paper Mache Monster. Was that just at um, the Coffee Quarter then? That was Derek Avery. No. Yeah. Really? Yep. Yeah. That's when I met you with... Uh-huh. No. Yep, because that's also when I met Selena. Huh. That was a Derek Evry show, and there's still there are pictures of that show. We, it was me, him, and Matt Berry. Uh, Aaron Mason actually wasn't on that gig. Okay, think. so the... No, no, the one that I'm thinking about with you then was at the Coffee Quarter in St. Mary's with you and just Aaron by himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. And I just yeah. played some, I just played some, yeah, like, percussion, played some, some percussion and sang some stuff. backup vocals. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. So you right. didn't do too much with Paper Mache Monster then? Well, there was every intention. Uh, the problem, I was dealing with a pretty bad case of tendonitis in, okay. like, in and around that time. So I played one show on bass guitar with them and then was still dealing with all these tendonitis issues and was having to step back from a lot of, mm-hmm. well, any performing, really. And, uh, but Aaron and I had become good friends. This is like over 10 years ago at this point. Right. Um, right. and, uh, and so, yeah. So yeah, I, f- I totally forgot about that show. I feel like, um, were your hands wrapped up? No. No. Okay. Cause I remember you talking about that and that's why you weren't yeah. doing, yeah. Okay. Um, was that because of all the running that you were doing even back then too? No, I actually, I was not, I was a runner briefly in high school and then hardly at all until three or four years ago. Okay. So back then I wasn't... No, the, the tendonitis, um, you could, I guess you could say... So I broke my wrist in high school, 1994, mm-hmm. uh, and it never healed correctly because it wasn't set right. Um, and so two years later, I had to get an osteotomy, which is a fancy word for cutting all the way through a bone and resetting it. And then a few years after that, uh, the pin that had been drilled into my arm... Uh, had to be removed because it was causing irritation when I was in grad school. So, um, and then other times periodically, I've just had issues where I was just saying yes to too many things and not sleeping and drinking enough water and drinking too much coffee and blah, blah, blah. Um, But a lot of things over the past year have changed, I think, that have made it easier for me to, even though I'm older now, like to to stay healthy and 
and uh, like I don't, I don't, uh, my, my diet's changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, but I also, I do run a lot and I think that helps kind of, you know, sweat out the toxins right. and, and keep my body pretty clean. So you only started running about five years ago? It was four years ago. Um, I had just reached the end of a on and off two year relationship that had become pretty toxic okay. for both of us. And I kind of did one of those things that people sometimes do where I was like, I'm going to change my life entirely. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start running and exercising and I'm going to go volunteer with a a dog shelter every week. And I'm going to make all these changes to my life. And a couple of those things actually stuck. Right. Uh, And running was one of them. I did actually run 14 miles yesterday. (laughs) And you said like, you were saying about running 15 miles earlier. That's sometimes not an exaggeration. That is impressive. I don't know how you do that. Well, it started with running one mile every other day. Okay. Um, and then I, I was just talking to some friends recently about how you don't hear about it because it doesn't make for a good rock and roll story. But, you know, the only musicians who really make it out of their 20s into their 30s and 40s and like while staying with like the touring life at all mm-hmm. are ones who transfer their, you could say addictions or obsessions or whatever with drugs or sex or whatever, you know, self-destructive, potentially mm-hmm. self-destructive types, types of behavior um, you know, not sleeping anywhere near enough, et cetera, et cetera, um, are the ones that transfer their uh, OC tendencies from that set of behaviors to like yoga, right? And being, something that's being vegan, you know, and self-sustaining it's, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's, it, they're just as crazy and nutty and like obsessive about those habits as they. The, those are the only ones that actually make it. You know, but it, like that's not really an interesting story on blah 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 dot com. No. Like, have you heard how crazy so and so is about not eating meat? Right, right. This is snooze fest. You, so know? you always just go with Keith so, Richards. Is going to be the only one alive after? Yeah, everything. it's more yeah. romantic to be like, oh my god, that guy's still alive. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and Keith Richards is famous for like, uh, you know, he'll get on stage and and say like, it's it's really good to be here. And and then you know and then be like no really it's just good right to still just be here exist. yeah <laughs> so at least he has a sense of humor about it all right well that's cool um so talk to me a little bit about how you've translated uh, all of your your music your playing even your obsession with running and your dedication to all that stuff even to your students and your teaching because mm-hmm. sometimes that stuff doesn't actually translate very well. Have you learned a lot about yourself and your playing that has helped you teach more? Sure. And and vice versa. Um, I have lots of friends who teach because they have to or because they have, you know, don't have another revenue stream that, that helps support them to, you know, while they're doing the music thing and trying to make that work. I've been really fortunate to have really loved teaching. I still enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, most people burn out after five or ten years, and I've been doing mm-hmm. it. Next year will be my twentieth year teaching. Oh wow! Okay. Um, and uh, during the time I've been teaching, I, I've had as I've had as many as fifty students on a regular basis, uh, and it's never been probably below like twenty. Um, and right now, in a, a comfortable like thirty or so students, between twenty and thirty students that I see generally once a week. Um, so that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, okay. And so if I was going to burn out, uh, I would have already, I think. Right, yeah. Um, and so really, I guess, I mean, it's it's a huge question. Um, 
there is a lot that doesn't overlap between performing and teaching. Because when you're performing, uh, nobody wants to go see somebody who doesn't command attention and doesn't have an ego on stage, right. I think. you know. Um, and so when you're on stage, you kind of have to get up there and own it and be like, I am, I am it right now. Right. You Otherwise, look for it's not that a... magnetic personality yeah. that comes out physically, mm-hmm. even though you're not actually singing anything. And if, even if you're behind the other people, that drummer especially still wants to be able to command attention and get focus on their... Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's just all about like making the song happen as right. good as possible, you know. But... um and and with teaching it's completely the other way around like it's that those the lessons are not about me at all it's about the student finding their way and how can i facilitate that um but you know there there's lots that carries over from teaching or from playing from teaching to playing and from playing to teaching teaching classroom is a little bit like performing because i'm not an extrovert and having to be in front of a room of like 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 uh whether they're kids or adults, uh, you have to behave a little differently. And with kids, there's also the, the added layer of discipline or the potential right. for needing to discipline, and that's not fun at all. Nobody likes to do that. Um, so that is a little bit like a performance sometimes, and it takes a similar mental energy, if not physical energy. Um, but I think the only thing that really those two things have in common is that you're going to be the most effective teacher or performer when you are completely genuine and honest when you're most yourself. Um, which is not to say that there are certain things I wouldn't say or do when I'm in a room with a kid that I would do on stage. I mean, you know, that's just common sense. Right. But um, if people believe you, then they're going to buy your record or they're going to come see you again. If they believe that they're really seeing you. If a student comes, if a student shows up and they feel like they're going to be in a room with somebody who's going to be honest with them, then they're going to come back. Yeah, that um, so. honesty, that integrity, that, mm-hmm. that just being true to yourself, definitely. Yeah. That's one of the things that probably is the easiest to, to latch on to and easiest also to, to see that you're, you're fake and see through it too, I feel like. Because even if you go and – because I've, I've done this myself where you have to get into a different mindset to teach. You have to get into a different mindset to be in front of people. And yeah. you have to let your personality come out a little bit too, mm-hmm. which that's what people cling on to. That's that's what actually like comes through, and there that's the reason why people were, are going to come back for you. Yeah, is your personality, your your way of. It's, a, it's an exchange of information. And it, yeah, yeah. I think the the biggest difference for me between teaching and performing, and some people might be surprised to hear me say this, but um, you know when you're performing. Even the best performance only lasts half an hour, 45 minutes. It's for one night. And and we have recently, Fuzz Queen played a show at the Black Cat. <clears throat> um, we opened for Garrett Gleason, this incredible guitarist, young guitarist in the area who just released a record. And the room, he did an incredible job with promotion. The room was full of people. And this, this woman came back... St- uh, to talk to us afterwards and was just effusive and like saying like she was speaking to me and uh, Aaron Fuzz Queen's vocalist mm-hmm. and, and guitarist um, you know like oh I just I really she said like she she could hardly put into words her response emotional response to the, to the music and that's like that's really really special when people have that kind of reaction um, 
and she will likely remember that for a while. I don't mean to. Yeah. I don't mean to downplay it all. She 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 might quote unquote. I'm putting up quote fingers. Remember it for her whole life. I don't know. Right. Um. But it was just one night. Whereas I've had students that have studied with me for five years, ten years, and I see them once a week for ten years. And so the the effect that they have on your life and you have on their life during that time is completely different. Yeah, because than... you're you're literally seeing them grow. Yeah. 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 And you could be a mentor, you can be a confidant mm-hmm. at that point, and it's probably a completely different experience than a band that may fizzle out within six months to a year, depending yeah. on, you know, the project and mm-hmm. depending on the dedication of the other people. And, you know, you have that one person that's dedicated to you and vice versa yeah. for a decade. That's, that's a little, a little daunting, I, I would think too, yeah. sometimes. And, it, and it's really, it's when you're in a room with a, with a student, you are face to face. When you're on stage, like depending on the lighting, like sometimes you can't even see who's listening to you. Who's watching you, you know, and they're, they're definitely like, I think I speak for any performing musician, like the, the energy you get from the crowd can have a huge, huge effect on how you perform, but it's not the same kind of one-on-one exchange. And so I think a lot of people assume that what I mean is like, like I am very proud of the recordings I've made, for example, or the yeah. shows I've played, but what I'm really talking about is what I get from it and what's given to me is, is far different with lessons than than from a show where I'm just kind of putting my noise out there. At right, you. <laughs> right. And you know, I might get I might get some great feedback, but it's not the same as like hanging out with somebody once a week for five years or ten. No, years. No, it's probably a little bit more fulfilling and more rewarding. I would mm-hmm. I would imagine. I mean, yeah. you're you're greatly impacting. You're possibly great you know, greatly impacting. And you're you're honestly seeing the feedback right away. Yeah. Where like. You know, I, I, I don't, I've never been fortunate enough to play in a band that like toured the world and like made real money and supported themselves and like sold records, you know, got signed to a major label, all right. that stuff. But I can imagine just from my experience, you know, touring independently with, with bands that like, I would, I would, wouldn't be surprised to hear like musicians who have toured on the national circuit, you know, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 person arenas say like, like they weren't really sure how they connected with their audiences. Like what, I guess I'm, I'm sort of reaching here because like this isn't a complete, completely uh, realized thought. But in other words, like you, you can't see the faces of the people a lot of times that, yeah. you're, that you're affecting, the, the people that you're communicating with. And you don't even, I think the internet probably has a, a bigger part of connecting people and being able to reach out directly to artists now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and telling them, you know, this record re- really meant a lot to me. I was in a dark place. This, yeah. Whatever it is, right? I would imagine when but you're with playing... with that comes all the bullshit, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Uh, but I would also imagine playing in a, a bigger arena or a bigger... Not arena, but sure, why not? When you can't see and feel everybody that's right in front of you, I'm sure it, it's a lot harder to connect and you might just be it's a bigger release i mean i I have been on a stage in front of twenty thousand people before and um i I will tell you the sound of that many people screaming you you don't just hear it you feel it and it's and it's not even just in the sound pressure it's just this electric thing but i think that's also very like as human beings like i think we're kind of wired for this like what you and i Mm -hmm. are doing right now um that's more natural um, but so getting adulation from 15, 20,000 people 
every night is amazing. And then going home for three months and six months and not getting that is it's, awful. It could, yeah. I <laughs> it's got to be. It it's can be an be. addiction. Um, it can be... For the wrong kind of personality. Yeah. For, sure. Especially for, you know, many musicians who are really good at what they do are good at what they do because they there was a gap somewhere where they needed attention they didn't get. And so they become very good at getting it. Um, and so then you get on stage and it's like, now you're getting feedback from not 50 people, a hundred people. Now you're getting 5,000, 10,000 people screaming along with your songs. It's like, yeah. it's like a drug. It really is. But that can never happen in a lesson. Right. You know, you're not, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you're never going to hear somebody say like, oh man, I can't wait to just get that, like that rush from teaching. <laughs> it's, it's a very, very, it's a much more slow release. Yeah. I do get a rush from like hearing about students who are still playing music, hearing about students who have then gone on to teach themselves. But a rush isn't really even the best word for it because it's such a like long con, right. not long con, long game, slow release, like pride thing and happiness thing as opposed to like 45 minutes of like sweating it out on stage and people screaming your name. That's great too. That kind of releases, you don't, you won't get that from teaching. Right. So um, and then for you me, said- there has to be a balance. You also said that you haven't really toured that much. Were the biggest ones with Fuzz Queen or? Well, Fuzz Queen grew out of the ashes of a band called Miss Siobhan and Yuma Ray. Which is actually, so that's that's one of my favorite live sets. Oh, cool. Still. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, that's awesome. So you were, you were talking about how um, that person may or may not remember this years and years. Um, I remember the first time that I saw... Uh, Siobhan and Yuma Ray, and this was at the, the backstage in Black Hat. Okay. So that was maybe a year or two before Fuzz Queen kind of Probably. formed, I feel like. Um, but it was you, you were on drums, and mm-hmm. then it was just them two, right? Or was there... Might have been. When I first started playing with... So Chris Stello and Aaron Frisbee uh, met, technically actually met in D.C. in the early 2000s, I believe. But... um and then went their separate ways and each moved separately to Chicago, were in bands themselves, found each other again, started playing together, uh, and formed this side project called Miss Siobhan and Yuma Ray that had some very heavy, like, Americana and, uh, um, psychedelic influences. Um, and when I say psychedelic, I mean like early, earlier, like Pink Floyd type, you know, um, and, uh, so they quickly realized that they were the only two people they knew that really wanted to tour as much as they did. And so they decided like they were going to quit their jobs and get rid of their apartments and all their other bands and just go on the road. And they did that. And then they made a record with a drummer. And then they found out that drummer didn't want to tour. I think they actually already knew that. Okay. And so they were looking for a drummer on Craigslist or Facebook and a mutual friend recommended that they get in touch with me. And I went and auditioned and I heard Aaron's voice. And I heard a song. That is a commanding voice. If you want to, yeah. If you want to talk about, yeah. And all, Chris and I figured yeah. out we had been at like probably two, two or three dozen of the same shows in DC back in the day because we were both similar it's age. It's a small and, world. That's why. Yeah, yeah. DC scene is very, very tiny. Really, still is. Um, and so, and I, and at that point, I was running from some stuff in my life where I'd like touring sounded like a great idea. Um, and so it was a great way of just kind of getting away from a lot of things. And so our goals and you know musical backgrounds lined up enough that it made sense and we ended up playing almost 200 shows together before that band sort of unraveled and um 
And and actually, I describe it as if like, okay, Mischievous Yumere ended, Fuzz Queen started, but really it was this weird, long, slow metamorphosis. Dissipa- yeah, dissipation or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the material started changing. We right. changed the name as it originally with the intention of a rebrand because we got tired of yelling it in people's ears and, you know, drunk people's ears in clubs, like our band name and expecting right. them to actually be able to spell it and remember it or the next remember day. It. Yeah. And yeah. it also sounded like the name of what it was when it started, which was like essentially almost like a folk duo, but we weren't that anymore. And we right. were having trouble booking because it really people would get evolved confused. into a much bigger sound. But the music yeah. had already been, been changing. And then we, um, so we lost the bassist who had been touring with us and who played one record with us, which was Derek Ivory. Um, and uh, so he left the band, and we weren't really sure what to do. And uh, Chris and Aaron, who had been living with his folks on the West Coast in Central Coast, California, moved to D.C. And, uh, and then we lived together for a while at 16th Street House, and um, we shelved an entire record we'd been working on for two years, decided to not put it out. Uh, and, and then we got asked to do a PJ Harvey tribute set. And we learned as a trio, uh, I don't know, 10, maybe 10 PJ Harvey songs. And within a few weeks, Aaron's writing had totally taken a left turn uh, in terms of things heading in more of a darker, heavier... Heavier, louder. uh, Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, okay, we've we've always had songs that were a little bit on the fringe in terms Mm -hmm. of being like darker. And we had one song that we used to do called uh, When the Pumps Run Dry that was kind of like a fan favorite but was way heavier than any of the rest of the Mishavon and Yumare stuff. And we, all of us in the band had always listened to a large variety of music, including some really aggressive stuff. So I knew what vocabulary to pull from to play drums that would sound right for those new songs. But at that point, we're like, okay, this isn't even the same band anymore. Like, it's the same three people, but it's not the same music and right. um, we very quickly kind of stopped playing any of the old material and Erin was just writing like crazy and every song she wrote every song she brought us was better and better and so um, yeah fast forward to so I brought in uh, Clinton uh, Cole who's our, okay. our current bassist he and I had played in an Elvis Costello tribute band together <laughs> that's uh, pretty cool and, and then he had played for a little while uh, with a band called Lowercase Letters that I was the drummer for. It was kind of like a neo-soul, hip-hop sort of thing. Um, and so he very quickly kind of made his, like it, in the culture of the band, it just fit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but Clinton was not able to tour as much as we wanted to. And right. the, the original idea with Fuzz Queen was to be a DC band and have a home base for a while. Because okay. Miss Siobhan and Yumare had always just been sort of Vagabonds. An orphan project that was touring nationally before we ever developed a local following anywhere. And that, we realized later, was something that definitely made it harder for us. But um, but we definitely wanted to tour. And when Clinton couldn't tour, um, I had actually wanted to be in a band with Selena since the first time I'd I'd seen her. Um, And had had tried to get her into a a band of mine before, and it didn't work out. I'm not even sure she knew that until I I told her recently. Oh, really? But... uh, but so yeah, um, Selena and Aaron had already, and Chris had already been come, become friends just because the scene here in DC, as you said, is very yeah. tiny. And we tried a couple different uh, touring bassists, and then we asked Selena if she would do a run with us. And she she has a lifestyle where it works, you know, because she's a graphic designer, she can work from anywhere. And um, she kind of knew what we were going for, and she's a great musician, super. 
you know, super brainy. Yeah. Then, Every know. time I see her play, it blows me away because I, I know what she is just like normally, mm-hmm. like just as a friendship level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I forget that she can play amazing guitar. Mm-hmm. And then I look at her on stage and I'm like, you make me feel bad. Thanks. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll, I'll get her to try and like run me through some chords or whatever yeah. that that I uh, that finally figured out how to play. Mm-hmm. She was like, "Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Here, let me do this." And she's yeah. like, "That's <laughs> that's way better." The Elliot, the dog, isn't coming to stop you. Just, <laughs> so that's cool. That's um, but yeah, but, she actually wrote the, the intro music for here. Oh, cool! Yeah. Very cool. So. Um, yeah, she, um, she worked out great on the road and, and I remember us having a conversation like not long after that where Aaron was like, man, Selena's so, so cool. So fun to have on the road. Like, I wish we could, she could just be in the band all the time. <laughs> and, um, so that just sort of worked out. We were like, we had one show where we had two, two drummers and two bassists, uh, at the oh, Black yeah, Cat. Yeah, yeah, That was at, um, was it that? Black Cat backstage. Okay. It was it was a thing we did. Uh, I forget the other bands that were on the bill actually, but um, it was really fun. And so Selena was on stage with us for that. And like, what what's really great about Fuzz Queen is that like nobody's ego is attached to their instrument. And so, <clears throat> in a lot of bands, like I've been in bands before, I've been like, hey, maybe we should get like another guitarist to like fill out the sound. And like right. the, one guitarist is like, oh, I don't know about that, you know. <laughs> like drummers never have to worry about that usually because you you don't want two drummers in most bands. No, but, no. But I've with, only seen that work a couple times live. It can be great. Yeah. So um, the I think it was the Rockopolis or something. Oh yeah. You guys a did. That's yeah, what it was called. Yeah. <laughs> I was terrible with that. And then the only other time that I saw that live that it worked really well was when I saw Brand New. This was years ago. Hmm. Um, I saw Kevin Devine, Manchester Orchestra, and Brand New, and Kevin opened, then he played guitar for Manchester, and then at the end of the the show with Brand New, all the members of all the bands were on stage oh, playing cool. something. Yeah. So there were two drummers. Oh, that's awesome. Multiple basses, the whole thing. It was <coughs> it was insane. I've never really seen that pulled off really well until I saw you guys do it live. Yeah, it was fun. Well, the other drummer we had on that was Adam Neubauer, and him and I had played drums. Uh, double drums in a band called the Cowards Choir for a couple of years. Yeah. So okay. so yeah, like it's very rare for drummers to be able to work with each other and complement each other. And I just I knew that with Adam it would be easy, and it was. Right. Um, and we really enjoyed it. And and so you know anyway, getting back to what I was saying about like zero ego, like so Fuzz Queen already had two guitarists, and um, <laughs> we're like we should just yeah. Aaron was, was like we should just get Selena to play third guitar, and I was like and it was never a thing of like are you sure that's a good idea? It was always like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We want to be surrounded by people that we like. Let's go ahead and do it. Yeah. And it's, it's been tricky at times just in terms of like figuring out arrangements because you do have to create space and you have to figure out stuff, everything from like which amps and pedals you use so that everybody isn't playing the same thing through the same kind of equipment all the time. Like, uh, but we've, you know, it, we've come this far with it. It's been, right. I don't know how long now, a year, I guess, since Selena has been playing with us full time. And, and then when Clinton can't make it on the road, she uh, just plays bass. She plays and, bass. Yeah. And it's, you know, we're very, very, very lucky, <laughs> uh, to have that kind of situation. Cause we get the best of both worlds. Last night we played at galaxy hut and we had all five of us there, um, which is a teeny tiny place Yeah, to put that amount of sound and 
Yeah. And make it like not well, fortunately, overbearing or Yeah. Fortunately Costa Casanova played right before us and they're loud as fuck. They are. Um, and uh in in the best glory most glorious way possible. But we were like uh Chris turned around uh, as we were setting up, he was like, Well, nobody left. <laughs> nobody like not about you know nobody left because it was too loud essentially right, like yeah right. I think we're good I think everybody so. going there would have, would have realized what kind of show that was like, yeah you you need we had earplugs it was yeah fine. you need the fine. uh the Air Force or the Navy <laughs> headphones make sure there's nothing coming in yeah. uh yeah that's funny um yeah it's it's uh, Chris Richards who writes for the Post described us in a in a podcast uh, another podcast as being maximalist. And uh, sounds about right. <laughs> I, I was like, when uh, we latched onto that word right away, Aaron was like, "Holy shit, I'm putting that in our Facebook bio right now." <laughs> um, and it, it kind of, you know, we, we we do play a lot with dynamics, but having three guitarists does enable us to create this sort of wall of sound density that, at the right moments, when that's what we want, we can get it. Uh, and it's it's it is really fun because it's super cathartic for I've, people who come see us describe it as as being super cathartic and like really compelling. So. It's working. That's great. Yeah. And then, so the main other active, uh, I would say, original band for you is Virginia Creep. Yeah. How how did that become a thing? Oh, okay. Um, well, that's pretty simple. So, uh, you know, I described that that toxic relationship uh-huh. that ended a few years ago. So one of the things I did, because uh, so I grew up playing louder music, and I was in Nitpick for a summer, and Nitpick was kind of the band that eventually, well, shared a lot of, at least a few members, especially the creative nucleus with Page 99, who a right. lot more people will, will recognize than, that was, than uh, Nitpick. The brothers? The Taylor brothers, yeah. Yep. Um, they were both in Nitpick. And uh, and then I went away to school and studied jazz for four years. And so, you know, my whole life I've been kind of like swerving back and forth. Yeah, between... I was about to say, that's a bit of a change for you. Yeah. Um, but most of my work in the DC scene for a number of years was with singer-songwriters, and that tends to be on the lighter side in terms of drumming. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I started playing with Derek, that was one of the first like times I was playing with a really aggressive band uh, in a while. I did play briefly with a band called The Speaks, which was a loud rock band that mm-hmm. was mostly Filipino. But apart from that, I hadn't done any loud stuff in a while, and uh, I was in a mood. <laughs> <laughs> to hit Same things least, really yeah. hard. And so I called up my buddy uh, JR and cuz so JR Hayes is the singer for the Pig vocalist Destroyer. Pig Destroyer. Yeah. I went to high school with JR. That's how I know JR. That's cool. Um and and we remained friends uh you know for years afterwards. I went off to college a couple times and we would occasionally lose touch and whenever we'd hang out we'd always talk music cuz I don't know if I know anyone who has a larger record collection than JR, and I think most people probably who listen to him aren't aware of just the incredible variety of music that he really enjoys. Right, because um, they may only know him from Pig Destroyer yeah. and not the yeah. whole variety that he yeah. has. Yeah, and he loves that music and has an encyclopedic knowledge of that, of, of like extreme aggressive music, but he also loves Bjork. And, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and so anyway, um, I called up JR and essentially, he called my bluff. I was like, hey, um, we should start a metal band. Half joking, right? Right. Because Virginia Creep's not a metal band anyway. But he was like, what are you doing next Monday? I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so meanwhile, Aaron Mason and I, who had played in a number of projects together, and Aaron's produced and engineered a bunch of yeah. recordings that I'm pretty proud of, um, 
uh, he had led that band, a paper mache monster that I really loved and still one of my favorite local recordings. Oh, um, for sure. The, the guitar unreal. work on there is, is always one of my favorites. Well, everything, that, yeah. the writing and the production. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and so Aaron has been one of my best friends for a long time. And, uh, I knew that he had some, some riffs collecting dust from, you know, he, he started a family and, uh, and that had been taking a lot of his time. Um, and I knew that he wanted to play in, in a, in a loud project. And, uh, so it just kind of made sense. And I think, I think the three of us got together maybe once before Chris Wright came on board, but Chris, Chris Wright, the bassist was, uh, JR brought him on. Um, and he is a Sterling kid, but I, he's, he's younger than I am. Um, and so I, I didn't know him from back in the day. I was aware of his band Tideland because their drummer uh, studied drums with me for a little bit. Okay. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was just one of those things where I think we wrote Irish Demon, which is on the first record, within the first few weeks that we started rehearsing. And it came. It was one of those weird stories where it's like the song, you listen to it and it sounds very angular and, mm-hmm. and uh, bizarre the way it's, th- but it just came together so quickly and we were like, this is a this is a band. This is cool, and uh, so it's always been a side project. Um, just in terms of like none, it, it's none of us have schedules that allow for the intensity of it being like a full throttle full, like yeah. touring band that that's busy all the time. Jr. Uh, is always going to have stuff with Big Destroyer. Right. Um, I play with a bunch of bands. Um, Aaron doesn't really have any other musical projects, but he's super involved in trying to get a lot of, you know, production and engineering stuff. Yeah. He's recording probably all the time. And then I think he just set up a new studio. Well, he's, he's, uh, helping out, uh, the folks at, uh, 38 North, which is the, essentially what they're renaming Red Room at Q in Falls Church. Um, and it's not just a rename. I mean, it is, they've totally gutted the place, got all new gear, redone it aesthetically and, in terms of like the sound baffling and the like everything, it's totally brand new and it's an amazing space. And he's very been very instrumental with that. Um, and and Chris Wright lives in Winchester and you know works a day job and and so this you know this is it allows him to kind of still play and be in a band and uh, it's it's great. It's just one of those things where like the chemistry of four, four personalities, musical personalities coming together, just has has always made sense. And I think what I enjoy about it the most is that. You know, people have a hard time really describing what it is we do. Right. Like, I think the goal of any musician or band is to to always sound like yourself, but but never be pigeonholable. You know, um, I pride myself in trying to do that every time I play. You know, um, if I accomplish it, then I'm super happy. But I'm always working towards that. And I think you know some of our songs. We have a lot of different influences. We we all really love. Um, th- th- it's interesting in that band. There's like, there's almost no bands that all four of us absolutely love. But there's lots of <laughs> bands that three of the four of us love. And it's like, like, Failure, Helmet, yeah. The Refused, Melvins, um, Jesus Lizard. Obviously, that's one of the influences yeah, we yeah, most wear can, on our sleeve. You can definitely tell that. Um, but it's really all over the place, like the stuff that we're into and, and what comes out when we put music together. That's, so, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. I just, I, I saw Jesus Lizard for the first time when I went to Riot Fest in Chicago. Wow. And uh, I, I, I missed them every time they came into D.C. at the Black mm-hmm. Hat. Um, <laughs> my friend went with me to go see them. She was like, what is this? I don't like his screaming. I don't like his 
guitar. The drums are fine, but I'm going to go over it this way. And yeah. I was like, I understand. I like it, but we'll we'll go over here. So we only stayed for like three songs, and she was like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's been one of my favorite, like, defining uh, musical acts growing up, sure. for sure. You know, them refused. Um, Fugazi was one of the biggest things that... that influenced yeah. me musically. I think I think the reason I hold the Jesus Lizard in such high esteem is is um you know, music can make you feel a lot of different emotions, but the reason that rock and roll I think first became so uh so popular and quickly ingrained into, you know, youth culture in America was that it was frightening to some people. It was scary. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't mean like fear for bodily safety. I just mean that like for the same reason, like when you go to a horror movie, you know, you're going to go home and be fine. You get on a roller coaster, you know, that you're, you're going to be statistically, Statistically, it's unlikely that anything as bad is going to happen to you, but you go for that, that feeling of like, I'm not completely in control. And the first time I heard the Jesus lizard, it was because they were opening for, um, Rage Against Machine at uh, the Patriot Center, that I think. That would have been an interesting show. Yeah. Um, and so, well, I mean, the industry puts weird bands together. I was just hanging with some friends the other night, and this woman who was there was talking about how um, her first concert was Alanis Morissette and Radiohead was the opener. That's insane. It's insane to us now. Yeah. But to to like the heads in the the big, you know, the big wigs in right. the record industry, like it was like, well, we need to put product A with product B. Because that, that was when Creep probably just came out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that makes, it makes sense. Sure. When you this think about it. This person has hits on the radio. This band has a hit on the radio. We're going right. to stick them together. Yeah. That's just um, an insane, because you just look at the sounds now yeah. of each of them. So, so. It might not make sense to us now that those bands were paired, but all I remember is that we were a little late to catch the beginning of Jesus Lizard's okay. set, but I remember walking in, and with the Patriot Center, it's like a sports facility. Yep. So you walk in, and and then you walk in. Does that make sense? Like, you walk in, and there's, like, the concessions, like, around yeah, the yeah, actual yeah. arena, and then you walk in. But I remember just setting foot inside, hearing sounds where I was like, something's not right. <laughs> and that's what I mean about that, like, fear, right? That, like, palpable, right. like, feeling, it sensation. And then we went further in. I was like, what the hell is happening on stage? It sounds like somebody's being, like, somebody's ha- being tortured on stage. You I know? feel like that was my friend's reaction. Yeah. And, like, I can completely understand why somebody who goes to hear music has a certain set of expectations and then when they hear the, the Jesus Lizard, like a lot of it sits far out, pretty far outside of those expectations. But that's kind of why they exist. Yes, is to challenge those expectations, you know, or any noise rock band. The idea is to be, is to be a little outside of, or a lot outside of, of what your average mainstream listener expects. And uh, and I'll be honest, the first time I heard it, I didn't quite know what to make of it. Um, but all I know is that I can't, I still can't stop listening to Goat and Liar. And those rec- and head and those records like um, it's one of my favorite rock rhythm sections. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's in- and you know, just the 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 fact that somebody can use his guitar in such a way where there's it's not like your traditional like power chords and like crunchy like mm-hmm. distortion, but just be every bit as heavy as you know any like rock or metal band like I think says a lot about the craftsmanship that goes into creating the 
those feelings of like, something's not right. Right. <laughs> you know? Cool. I dig it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the foundation that you have. And then, uh, I'm going to go into some other stuff to wrap it up. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, the Craig's tough, Craig Tufts Foundation, because I can say your name too. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about that, and sure. then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, uh, my father was Craig Tufts. He was the chief naturalist for the National Wildlife Federation um, for 30 years, and he passed away um, a little over nine years ago after a struggle with brain cancer. Um, and I mentioned a little bit before that he was um, a big influence just in terms of uh, being a, a big music fan and mm-hmm. the impression that left on me. Um, Reading the liner notes, which no yeah. one does anymore because yeah. there's no liner notes. Yeah, they don't exist. Um, and uh, he was also, and I didn't come to realize this until much later, but he was also one of my, he was my probably my first influence as a teacher because even though he was not, it wasn't in his job description to be an educator, he taught everyone he came in contact with, whether it was um, doing outreach stuff with community, with, with schools and leading walks, uh, on the, the Claude Moore property where, where I grew up until I was eight. Um, and, and, you know, working with groups of kids who did field trips to come to the, to the mm-hmm. Claude Moore farm and see the conservation stuff that was going on there, or just leading nature walks during his lunch break at National Wildlife Federation and people tagging along to learn stuff. He was always not just spouting information, but demonstrating why it was important and cool to know things. And to be passionate about something. And I was willing to impart his information. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, when I teach lessons, I don't just say, hey, hit this drum then and then hit that drum the other time. Like, it's it's a lot of it's like, oh, you like this band? Well, you really need to hear this band. Here, I'll send you a link to... Yeah. It used to be I'll burn you a CD until, like, I started to realize, like, kids didn't have anywhere to put no, the CD. No, no. So now it's like, oh, I'll spend, send you a Spotify link or you know, blah, blah, blah. I have, I have roughly 500 CDs yeah. just kind of floating around at yeah. least... Um, but yeah, you gotta, you gotta tell people the why you gotta, you yeah. gotta once, and once you find you gotta that, show them why. Yeah. You know? And then once you find that one thing that they like, you can lead down a rabbit hole of, yeah. you started a fire. I remember, yeah. I remember being online when I was 15, 16 years old and all we had were chat rooms and they were finally doing like band forums and, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out everything and then finding, um, I think I found Mission of Burma. Oh wow! And I, I saw them. That was my one of my first shows at the Black Cat was Mission of Burma. When, when was that? I was sixteen, so probably fifteen years ago. Okay. Um, it was amazing. Um, uh, I've I've talked about a little bit about my experience on this show before, but um, I was yeah, I was sixteen. I was probably one of the youngest people in the room. Um. And when you're in that that scene and that culture where all you do is learn as much as you can about music and you go through and you, like I was talking about with those rabbit holes online, you're like, okay, I love Mission of Burma. What are all the other bands that are around that that time? Then I find the Buzzcocks and I find all the the old, like first wave punk. And then it it was a lot. There's definitely a whole rabbit hole. Right this conversation we could have about how people find music now versus how people found music ten or twenty years ago. Right, and then so I'm overhearing a conversation uh, from one of the the guys that probably was there when they first came out, and he's fifties at least, right? So he's talking about how um, he was talking to this kid online. 
something about one band. He was like, no, that's not right. And then I just remember like nodding my head because all they were doing was arguing back and forth. That's how online conversations were. Yeah. Uh, and we're like, oh, this band inspired this band or this whatever it was, right? Um, and then I was nodding my head in agreement with him, and then he saw me, and then throughout the rest of the show, him and I interacted, and oh, it cool. was just, it was an amazing experience for the the generation gap to share with a band that came out in '78 mm-hmm. and played for two hours straight. It was amazing. The guy, uh, the drummer, was still having issues with his hearing and had this huge blast wall shield on there, hmm. um, but played literally for two hours straight. And it, they didn't even really do an encore. They were like, yeah, we would normally go off the stage, but we're just going to do a whole other set. <laughs> uh, we're great. just too old to leave the stage. Yeah. Um, and then when I saw Boat Burning, um, the oh, trinary yeah. star, um, the, the dude from there is... Um, part of the original mission of Burma. So oh, okay. it was just a really, really cool thing for me. And then that shaped my whole mindset about all ages shows. And that's all the, all that I want to do mm-hmm. because you, you look at that experience and how that bridges the gap and how music really brings everybody together. Yeah. And there aren't enough all ages shows in the DC area. No. There really aren't. Um, anyway, sorry. So we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. go back. So uh, that, that so- music bringing everybody together, bringing, you and your dad, yeah. Yeah. So, so music was something that my dad and I shared. Um, and as as he as his health began to really decline, and he decided to refuse any further treatment, <clears throat> um, it was his wish that any funds uh, received, any donations, go to a scholarship fund to um, to help kids study nature, and. Um, and so that was his wish, and um, the f- the fund uh, is held at National Wildlife Federation. They they manage the funds, uh, and um, so the f- the family and f- and close friends have sort of helped run the thing. It's not my foundation by any stretch of the gotcha. imagination. Um, it is my events bring in the the lion's share of the of the money uh, for mm-hmm. the f- for the foundation. But uh, for example, the the essay contest that that runs every year, um, that decides the winner of the scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, I only started participating in, in judging the essays like a few years ago, but they've done it every, every year since, uh, 2011. Okay. And uh, you do roughly one event or two events per year. It's been two a year. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've been doing the original music showcase since I think, uh, 2010 mm-hmm. uh that might be right but then and that's always been in the summer um but the uh the tribute shows starting as far back as uh the who live at leeds tribute show that we did which mm-hmm. actually originally wasn't supposed to be a craig tufts fund event but i decided to put my fair my share of the money into gotcha. it and and a number of the other artists on the bill did did this they followed suit but um that started four or five years ago, and those are usually in the in the late winter, mm-hmm. like February, March. So two a year, and um, so all the proceeds go to the scholarship fund. The um, the scholarship fund uh, essay contest is advertised uh, every year online and through the the National Wildlife Federation magazines, like Ranger Rick and uh, National cool. Wildlife and Your Big Backyard. I think that's one of the magazines they still do. 
And, uh, and so they pick one winner from that every year, and we send them to uh, what's called a Family Nature Summit, mm-hmm. which is like a week-long eco-vacation where kids... It's actually for the whole family. Um, That's and, amazing. Yeah, it's really neat. Um, yeah. I actually used to go every year growing up because they used to be... Uh, the Federation used to be in charge of them, and my dad was always on faculty. Okay. Um, and then the Federation sort of stopped doing it, but enough people felt strongly about it that they wanted to continue it, that it became a third-party, like, independent thing. Um, and there's there's no, like, animosity between the two at all, and the Federation gotcha. still okay. supports it. They just, just not financially. Um, right. And so we work with them to, uh, to send a kid and a guardian to one of those every year. And it's in a different natural location every year. This year it was somewhere in Maine. Uh, that's pretty amazing though. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. It's a cool thing to be part of. It's, it's in the weird political climate that's going on right now. And with all the other places that funds could be going for charity, it sometimes feels strange to be raising money to send kids to study nature, but I still feel so strongly about it that like, you know, it's just, that's my mission. So, yeah, well, I mean, hopefully that, that one experience can lead to something that is profound in climate yeah. change or profound in yeah. Because if you if, if, if you believe in climate change, uh, you, most people kind of agree that it's kind of actually should be like the most important thing because if it's happening at the rate people say it is, then like yeah. it doesn't matter how we're treating each other if we're none of us are here to treat each other one way or the other in well, uh, you know ten or twenty years. Yeah, you just so. saw <laughs> an, an article yeah. about you know barley probably being heated up and and gone through in the next 10 20 years so you could essentially have no beer so that would probably be a very bad thing (laughs) that's gonna gonna make some people unhappy yeah Yeah. um okay so that that's very cool and i I think that's a very good uh mission to have um let me ask you this to to wrap up what is for for you what is one thing that really keeps you going with all the different projects that you have and something that keeps motivation uh at the forefront for you and do you struggle with that at all at any time? Yeah, I, I struggle with depression and uh, on a regular basis. And, and running is one of the th- and kayaking is something I'm also really passionate about. Although this year, I have not been out on the boat nearly as much as last year because it was a hot and wet summer. Yeah, it was <laughs> um, gross. Yeah, it was disgusting. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I struggle with depression for sure. I know a lot of musicians that do, and I think one of the things that makes it still such a tough thing for a lot of musicians is that there's still a stigma where people don't talk about it. So I make sure to, and you know, I don't try to be Debbie Downer and like, you know, in just, you know, random social situations, right. be like, Hey, I was depressed last night. Like, but, <laughs> well, but in the right context, in that, in that in the way, right context, where, I think where, it's yeah. helpful for people to know that other folks struggle with it too. And so, yeah. um, anyway, uh, you don't want to sound like a happy clown when you talk about depression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Staying motivated can be a tricky thing. I think the people that are in the bands I I participate in, they're like it's like saying you know friends of the family you choose. It's kind of cliche to say, Mm -hmm. but like it's. um, And when I say that, I I really mean it because like just like we don't all get along with our family all the time. Like I'm not saying that like every gig and every rehearsal and every hour in the van is always wonderful peaches and cream right. yeah i mean it's 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 really hard to figure out how to keep communicating about common goals and like um that's why a lot of bands don't last very long but uh, it's the people who keep coming out for rehearsals and shows and trying to make this music that i get to play drums to that um that really keep me going it's it's the records we make that are like as permanent as any document you know, could be that, that, 
you know, even though it's likely that nothing I, I've ever played drums on is going to reach as many people as like a, like a, you know, uh, uh, Hotel California or, right. or or Abbey Road or Nevermind or something like, if I can have even like a tiny fraction of, you know, if I can leave behind something that has even a tiny fraction of an effect mm-hmm. on somebody's uh, listening experience as any of those records, then like I'll consider that a win, you know. It's the so. it's one of the reasons why I'm doing this is yeah. the worst case scenario. This is a conversation with someone that I, I like, a conversation and a record for me. Of, of everything that I have kind of come in contact with and and kind of dove into and, and tried to figure out for me. Um, we talked about this earlier off mic, but, you know, one of the reasons why there was such a big gap between the recording sessions and the launch of it is I didn't feel like doing anything. I was in a rut myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, recognizing that and recognizing also that, you know, there are people out there that, that do want to hear what you have to say. Uh, that do you have your own intrinsic uh, value to yourself to get your message out to get your feelings out to get everything out is is definitely important too mm-hmm. yeah I think it's you know we, we all have to remember that we're all exhaustible resources you know talking about the like the, the climate change thing like and the uh, renewable energy like that, yeah. that doesn't really exist for humans like we have to consume we have to sleep we have to rest and we each come to the table with a certain amount of uh, emotional energy, uh, a reserve, mm-hmm. you know, I guess you could say to draw from. And and the thing about creatives is that, like, the reason there's this myth about depression, like, fueling, like, great music, which you talk to any musician, they'll tell you it's complete bullshit. Like, real, actual depression is a, is a crippling thing it's that stops you from creating anything, yeah. is that what you'll see publicly from an artist is a delayed reaction to how they felt uh, from how they felt like three or six months ago. So like if I get depressed and I stopped respond and I stopped responding to texts and emails about gigs, that means in a month or two I don't have any work. Right. Right. But while I'm the busiest, could be the time that I'm also most unhappy. And so if I'm not careful, it can go in cycles. And so the things that have pulled me out of that is that I'm in bands with people who, when they ask how's it going, they mean it. And they really want an answer. You know, I mean, you bump into somebody in the street that is like an acquaintance. Hey, oh, hey, how are you? That's a greeting. It's not, good. it's not, a, yeah. Um, I'm in bands with people that I know I can lean on when, um, when the answer to that question is like, not good. <laughs> um, and and I, I hope that they feel that way about me too. And that's the thing I think we have to keep doing, like in the community is like... That human connection. Yeah, like when you say, how's it going? Like wait for an answer and, and look them in the eye and really mean it because, right. you know... Uh, that can be the thing that like pulls somebody up out of the muck just enough that they that they don't kind of go into a hole for a while and and stop creating because because that art is is what those are the fruits of you know pain or struggle or whatever and like and that's they're the things that help us heal they're and they're the proof of healing you know uh, so cool. All right. I think that's it. <laughs>